the true story of the Gainesville killer that inspired the Scream movie franchise. The Scream movie franchise has been accused of inspiring a series of real-life murders, but actually it's just the opposite. A particular Florida murder spree inspired the film, one might say. Danny Rawlings, better known as the Gainesville Ripper, terrorized the small town of Gainesville, Florida, where the University of Florida is based. There, he murdered five students over just a few days in August of 1990, turning the safe town that never locked their doors into a carnival of carnage and blood that stained the area forever. Join us tonight if you dare as we explore the real-life scream killer on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Daniel Harold Rowling, like Eric said, a serial killer that murdered five students in Gainesville, Florida over the course of just a few days in late August of 1990. Uh, he would eventually confess to raping several of his victims, a triple homicide in his home city of Shreveport, Louisiana, and the attempted murder of his father in, in May of 1990. So this was horrific. a good dude. Now, as, as we've discovered with many of these serial killers, there is sort of a, a dark upbringing here for, for Mr. Rawling. He was born in Shreveport, Louisiana on May 26, 1954. His father was Shreveport police officer by the name of James Rawling. And Mr. Rawling was a decorated Korean War veteran and basically told Danny from birth that he was an unwanted member of the family. Oh, that's nice caring love. Mr. Rawling abused and beat Danny, his mother Claudia, and his brother Kevin. Uh, Danny said he was beaten for the first time at the age of one for not crawling properly. This man was on the police force. Yeah. Do they not do background checks on these guys? <laughs> uh, minor things such as breathing in a displeasing way would apparently set off Mr. Rowling. Uh, one time, Danny was pinned to the ground, handcuffed, and taken by the police because he embarrassed his father. Wow. So I guess when you're a cop in Shreveport, you can get away with anything. Wow. Uh, Danny had a dog, and, and James beat the dog all the time, and he beat him so severely one time that, that Danny cradled the dog as it died in his arms. Whoa. One incident that he remembered was his mother um, going to the hospital where she claimed that her husband tried to make her cut herself with a razor. So Father Year Award goes to not yeah. you. Uh, she made multiple attempts to leave her husband, always went back. As a teen and young adult, Danny was arrested several times. At the age of 14, he was caught peeping into a neighbor's daughter's bedroom. Well, which teenage American boy hasn't tried that? And you can guess what his father did when he caught him doing that. Beat him. He beat him because that's what his dad did. He uh, committed a lot of robberies. He was caught spying on women getting dressed. He really had trouble fitting in as an adult. He could not hold down a steady job. He tried to join the Navy, but they wouldn't take him. He joined the Air Force, but quit after too much drug use, is, is what I read. Wow. So I'm not sure exactly what that means. 
Now he did get married, uh, at age 23, after four years of marriage, they separated. Uh, she left him after he threatened to kill her in 1977. Like father, like son. So, uh, after this, he, he gave into his anger and sexually assaulted a woman that looked a lot like his now ex-wife. Uh, he later killed a woman in a car accident, which apparently affected his psyche even more. Um, during the late 1970s and, and into the 90s, he committed a series of minor crimes and thefts, broke out of prison multiple times. Uh, he was fired and quit from, from jobs just as quickly as he could take them. Obviously, this, this guy, guy had comes issues. From, troubled, yeah. from a troubled background. Distraught upbringing. He did seem to finally snap, break, however you want to phrase it, in May of 1990, where when he finally he attempted to kill his father during a family argument, he shot his dad twice, and in the process, his father lost an eye and an ear. Whoa. So this was sort of like him finally really acting out with, with you know, homicidal violence. And facing his fears head on, literally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the one thing he's probably been terrified of his entire life, and he finally takes a stand, so. Well, setting the stage in Gainesville, Florida, ironically, in early August 1990, the town was featured in a couple large nationwide magazines, and it said the beautiful university town of Gainesville, Florida, is stated to be one of the top 15 best locations to live. Now, this magazine publication came out literally weeks before the, uh, the bloody carnage started. But just within a few months after that occurred, the city renamed or got renamed as Grizzly Gainesville, talking about falling out of graces, uh, after the serial killer had left a trail of five bloodied bodies of young college students there in his path. Now, I might also add there's another victim to this story. One week after the first murders took place, there was a young gentleman by the name of Edward Humphrey, simply wrong place at wrong time. Uh, He had a heavily scarred face due to a car accident, and he kind of had a little bit of, shall we say, a questionable background, which left him as the stereotypical scapegoat. Uh, He was emotionally disturbed and is one who would scream out, it said, in violent tempers. The police was pretty quick uh, connecting the dots and felt that this was the serial killer. Uh, however, while he was locked up in jail, the murder spree continued. Have you noticed that when we do these serial killer episodes? There's always with, this one poor guy. I was going to say, with the exception of John Wayne Gacy, maybe. I don't remember it with him, but like the cops always arrest somebody else. And, and this guy's always innocent, completely innocent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy, he had some mental issues uh, he with the car accident i will say i saw videos his his face was very heavily scarred yeah I he saw was pictures. very conscientious of that you could tell he he kind of you know shunned away he was very shy but it was like anybody else you know you poke and prod somebody enough with a stick and you know they're going to lash out and so he had that violent temper and kind of that questionable background and sure enough it's like pin the tail on the donkey and the police arrested him and said oh we got the guy but obviously they didn't so early morning, Friday, August the 24th, 1990, Daniel breaks into an apartment shared by 17-year-old Sonia Larson and Christina Powell. Powell is asleep downstairs on the couch, and he stands over here for her for a little while, uh, but he doesn't wake her up. He goes upstairs, and he finds Larson asleep in her bed. He tapes her mouth shut to silence her. Uh, he then stabs her to death with a K-bar knife, which if you're familiar with that, it's a combat knife that's used commonly by the military. Uh, she died while trying to defend herself. He then goes back downstairs. He tapes Powell's mouth and binds her wrist behind her back. 
He threatens her with a knife while he cuts her clothes off. He then forces himself on her and, and stabs her five times in the back. Before he leaves, he takes time to pose the bodies in provocative positions uh, and then takes a shower even before leaving the apartment. And this posing of the bodies, this is, this is the dude's MO. This yeah. is what he's all about. Uh, Saturday, August 25th, he breaks into the apartment of 18-year-old Krista Hoyt. Uh, he pries open the sliding glass door with a screwdriver. I'm going to be, I'm going to go on the record as saying sliding glass doors have got to be the least secure form of door you can think of. She wasn't home at the time. So he waits for her in the living room. She comes in about 11 AM. He attacks her from behind with a chokehold, uses duct tape to gag her mouth, binds her wrist behind her back. He takes her up to the bedroom where he cuts her clothes off and assaults her, uh, stabs her in the back, rupturing her aorta, which I mean, that's fatal. Uh, he then rolls her over and slices her abdomen open. When he leaves there, he returns to his, this campsite he's been staying at because at this point he's basically homeless because, uh, you know, he can't hold down a job. He's got all these other issues going on. He realizes he's missing his wallet. Oops. I mean, that's not something you want to leave at the crime scene. Uh, he goes back to Hoyt's apartment to look for it. And while there, he decapitates her and poses her body and puts her head on a bookshelf looking at her body, which he, he left laying on the bed. So, yeah, this weird, strange posing. Well, and you said, you know, slit her her belly basically and i don't want to get too graphic here but pulled her entrails out and yeah. arranged them in some pattern as if to frame well, the body and, and if you think of the scream movie like the very first kill is kind of like that yeah he he did claim later on that it was his intent to shock whoever found her i think it definitely did it yeah i would say so uh by now of course the murders are attracting media attention and students begin taking precautions some change the routines um I have here, they sleep in groups. I'm assuming that means they're staying together. I don't I hope Safety it wasn't. In numbers. Yeah, I hope they weren't having big orgies in response <laughs> to this. Uh, some students withdrew or even transferred to other schools. I mean, they, there was a massive dropout of college. And this school. was within just a few days of the college starting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, for the season for, to start. You know, so yeah, a lot of the parents were like pulling their kids out and they're like, no, you're not going here. And yeah, it was, it was quite an ordeal. So Monday, August 27th, he breaks into the apartment of Tracy Pauls and her roommate, Manny Taboda. Taboda. Both of them age 23. Again, he pries open a sliding glass door. Again, I'm going to express sliding glass doors are not secure. Uh, he finds Taboda asleep in one of the bedrooms and he kills him after a brief struggle. Pauls heard the commotion and went to Taboda's room to investigate. There she sees Rawling and she runs back, attempts to barricade herself in her room. He comes crashing through the door. Tapes her mouth and wrists like he's done before, cuts off her clothing, assaults her, stabs her three times in the back, and then poses her body but leaves Taboda's exactly as it was. Yeah, it was kind of believed that he maybe didn't know Taboda, the, the male was there, or he was just kind of, you know, outside of his normal killing spree, that's why he didn't pose yeah. him or anything. Yeah, well, and except with the exception of Taboda, all of his victims are petite, Caucasian brunettes with brown eyes, which is a dead ringer for his mom. So... There might be some other issues here. Maybe he's angry that his mom didn't protect him from his father or whatever. Right. right. But again, you know, you've got that dark upbringing, that background, and obviously there's something that bleeds over into his killing. Now, one of the things that you've said, and this was kind of one of the things that the police later caught on to, was he used duct tape to uh, duct tape their hands together. As you stated, he was very cautious. He was one of the uh, first serial killers the police said, at least in that area, to wipe the bodies down. 
you know, a way to erase any any signs believe, of him. He took a shower. I was going to say, I believe he cleaned the crime scenes with bleach or yes, something. Yes, with bleach and cleaning compounds. He would then take the duct tape and cut it away and remove it so that he wouldn't even leave the duct tape. But the residue was there so the yeah. police could figure these kind of things out. So he definitely, these were well thought through plans. But it was just so weird that a serial killer would strike that many times that frequent. Yeah. You know, like with the... New Orleans axe murder and stuff. We talked that, my gosh, there's sometimes months years. or yeah, that, years. That, that took years to unfold. This or guy John was like just full blown revolver. Next, 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 next. Yeah. So what eventually leads to his downfalls, Louisiana police alert the Florida police to an unsolved triple murder in Shreveport that happened on November 4th, 1989. Uh, a local detective saw similarities between the Gainesville murders and the Shreveport murders. Uh, it was, this was the murder of 55 year old William Grissom, 24 year old daughter, Judy and eight year old grandson, Sean. They were attacked in their home. Julie's body was mutilated. The body, her body was cleaned and posed. So you saw some of the same hallmarks of that, that particular assault. So investigator Don Mains with the Florida department of law enforcement travels to Shreveport because of these similarities and decides to get with their police department to, to kind of compare their heads together. Um, the posing of the victims, the tape residue on the victim, vinegar used to clean the body in this case. They tested bodily fluids from the scene and found that their perpetrator had the same blood type in, in the Shreveport and the Gainesville killers. Shortly after, Shreveport resident Cindy Jurisic told police that Danny Rawling was possibly connected to both sets of murders. Now, she had met Rawling at, uh, at a church in her hometown that he had said very disturbing things to her and her husband. Uh, Rawling would come to their house nightly until the husband put a stop to it. Her husband said that Rawling told him that he had a problem. And when, when he asked what the problem was, Rawling responded to Stephen that he liked to stick knives into people. I read that. Yeah. He was like bragging about yeah. it. I like to stick people. Danny also told her one day I'm going to leave this town and I'm going to, and I'm going to where the girls are beautiful and I can just lay in the sun and watch beautiful women all day, which kind of sounds like Gainesville. Yeah. Uh, based on the words the, to her and her husband, she kind of thought maybe there was something there and that he might have a connection to those killings. So she kind of tipped them off to him. Now, investigators acted on this tip. They eventually tracked him down. Turns out he'd been arrested on September 7th, 1990 for oh, robbing, robbing a supermarket in Ocala. Something totally unrelated. Yeah. We've talked uh, about this before. You know. Yeah, apparently he led police on a, on a high-speed chase. Uh, where they, you know, they eventually, you know, got him and arrested him. Uh, it was 10 days after that that they discovered the bodies of Pauls and Taboda. Uh, blood tests revealed that he had the same blood type as their murder suspect. So once Florida investigators realized Rawling had multiple convictions for armed robbery and realized he could have been responsible even for a bank robbery that occurred the same day Krista Hoyt's body was found. So, I mean, he was not a good character. Not a good character. And I, again, I don't want to get too deep into this but you mentioned the dna and how they were able to match up the blood work one was taken from semen samples from where he had raped one of the young uh, girls in gainesville going back to the shreveport incident apparently he had sliced off the female victims one of her breasts Ugh, and had chewed that. on it and it was that saliva wow. matched with the semen sample this guy was twisted sick disgusting once he once they realized that he was probably their suspect, they checked the evidence that was collected during his arrest. They found a gun, a screwdriver, a bag of money, and a cassette player with a tape inside. Uh, they also found tools matching marks left at the Gainesville murder scenes. 
And, and I guess all this was found at his camp where he'd been living in the woods. Uh, this camp was near apartment complexes frequented by students. So he was observing them, I would be sure. And I saw some of the, the footage photos. I mean, and I've seen this in a lot of small towns, you know, college towns, you've got these kind of uh, multi-complex duplexes and stuff, but then there's like this little patch of woods, maybe down into a little valley crevice that's, that kind of connects them. And that's exactly like where the camp was. I mean, he yeah. was, he couldn't have been any closer to some of these areas, but nobody thought to really look there. Yep. Apparently on the cassette tapes, they, uh, they, they found audio diaries he'd made that didn't really confess to the crimes, but alluded to his involvement in them. Now, Bill had shared, and again, this happens quite often. We, we don't get together and say what we're doing on our research. It's literally that part is live when we're doing the, the broadcast. And I liked it that in this instance, Bill touched upon kind of inside of the killer's head and what, what went on. I'm going to go back and revisit this from the police standpoint. So we have the first killings of Christina Powell and, and Sonia Larson. Uh, it was about 4 p.m. Uh, that Sunday in 1990 in August, uh, one day before the first day of the University of Florida opened up. And a 35-year-old officer, Ray Barber, uh, was actually just getting ready to check out for the day when he overheard on the radio a call to the Williamsburg uh, Village Apartments. He thought to himself, I've already answered two other calls here just in the last few days. And one was for like loud music and, and another one was like for a little spat. So he said it was, it was pretty normal, especially with the college kids coming in. So he's like, I'll catch this on the way home. However, uh, when he decided to take that last call, he pulled into the Williamsburg Village Apartments, and he was greeted by a maintenance man. Now, he come out and met the officer. He stated that he had some worried parents of a new tenant who had concerns that they could not reach their daughter. His boss, the landlord, suggested that the maintenance man wait and not to enter until local police authorities had arrived on the scene. Uh, that was a good thing. Uh, officer Barber was initially kind of unconcerned, as I'd said, uh, but even finding out that it was possibly a missing persons, as he stated, young adults among young adults, this was quite often with college kids. Well, I would, yeah, uh, they kids, just got away from their parents. They're going to college. My, my kid goes know. to college. He he texts me every day for the first you know few weeks or months or whatever. But now we we talk on the weekend, and sometimes we don't even get a chance to do that. I mean, we have busy lives, right. busy schedules. And he's a college kid. You know, if he's off yeah. partying. They're out sowing their wild oats <laughs> in one way or another, you know, uh, possibly. They got drunk and just forgot the yeah. lost track of time, whatever. So, again, he's kind of, he's not getting too concerned about this. But the maintenance man insists, you know, the landlord said I needed to wait till you got here till we approach. Literally, the parents, uh, Frank and Patricia Powell, their daughter is Christina, which is age 17, was there. They're parked nearby. They had been trying to get a hold of, of Christina and her roommate, which was another 17-year-old uh, by the name of Sonia Larson. And she also had not called her parents. So these two young ladies knew one another. Apparently, the parents had at least met or had each other's phone numbers. So they had contacted. They knew that neither set of parents had heard from the daughters. So this information is being shared uh, with Officer Ray Barber here. And, you know, He's now starting to say, well, maybe there's something more going on here as they're literally walking towards the apartment. Uh, now, since this was a new apartment lease, the phones had not yet been installed. So we, we, we kind of discount that. Okay, well, maybe that's why we didn't have phone call. 
The maintenance police officer went to investigate, finding, as Bill had stated, some pry marks on an exterior door that led up to a flight of steps to the second floor apartment. The maintenance man attempted to use his master key. However, it did not seem to work. That is later thought because maybe something had been tried to pick the lock and had broken off inside of it. Officer Barber at this time shattered one of the small glass windows to gain access, simply reached inside, found the deadbolt, which was locked from the inside, unlocked the door, and upon doing that breaking of the glass, said he was greeted with a foul stench that came from inside the stairway. They found the naked body of one girl on the steps leading up to the apartment, multiple stab wounds, uh, and had been positioned as if laying seductively on the steps was how it was described. The men rushed up the steps, found the second girl's body, also with multiple stab wounds, on her bed with her hands above her head and her hair fanned out, they said, as if she was lying in a pool of water. It was later revealed the girl had both of her breasts cut off to add to this bloody, gory scene, as if to strike a maximum shock factor for whomever would find the young ladies. The weapon, while not located, was thought to be a small knife, as Bill had said, quite possibly a military-style knife, that was used to stab both of the girls. It is also believed the murders took place somewhere between 11 p.m. and 4.30 a.m. Word of the murders spread very quickly through the small town, although no names had been released. One of the neighbors reported immediately hearing one of the girls showering, which I thought that was kind of strange, and also loud music followed by some banging noises. Now, he just thought, you know, it's new kids coming in, They're hanging pictures in their new apartment. Didn't think much about it. In the coming day, over 20 police officers and authorities assisted to serve with the investigation, along with a slew of media vans and trucks trying to gleam information. Now that sounds a lot like the Scream movie. (laughs) Definitely. It was during this time that another, a third young woman was witnessed pulling up in the parking lot. She went to her trunk, grabbed some suitcases, and apparently just started across the yard right towards the door. Uh, She was immediately stopped by the police and questioned. Her name was Elsa Strepp. She was escorted from the scene. She had no idea that it was her roommates that had actually been killed. Uh, For whatever reason, she hadn't listened to the radio. They hadn't put the names out yet. I mean, could it be that she was moving in for the She was getting ready to to move in. She she might not have realized. It is said that she had arrived late due to some issues with her car and Obviously, that saved her life. But to walk up on this scene, she had no idea that here two of her friends had been murdered. She grabs her suitcases like she's going to college. Nothing is happening. And and the police just kind of head you off. So, well, here I thought this was interesting because we go back to the officer, Ray Barber. Now, obviously, I had stated that he wasn't too bad worried about this. This came unraveled very quickly for him. Yeah. Uh, as we've talked with police law, law enforcement officers and, and guests we've had on the podcast, this is the kind of stuff these guys have to deal with and it haunts them, many of them till their own death. He was quite traumatized by this and he goes ahead. He, he files what he has to, he's already heading home, uh, which leads us to the Krista Lee Hoyt, the next murder. While police were still finalizing the details from the evening before his double murder, the town would again be plagued with horror. Officer Ray Barber, who was still gathering his own thoughts at home, who discovered the first grisly scene was still coping at his home with his wife, Gail. Now, ironically, wife Gail also served, but this time in the sheriff's department, and she worked night shift. She'd stayed up with her husband as long as she could before 
duty called, literally, and she had to leave right about midnight, so she herself left for work. Officer Gail Barber made a radio dispatch call concerning an 18-year-old Krista Lee Hoyt, a young lady who also worked at the sheriff's office as records clerk while taking her college classes. This would enable her to enter a full-time career into the law enforcement realm. She had not yet shown up for work, and from apparently what I could tell was about an hour late, very unlike her. So the sheriff's department had said, hey, while you're passing by, would you mind to stop and check? So um, Krista Lee Hoyt did not answer her phone. So Ray Barber's wife, Gail, who worked for the sheriff's department, and her uh, male sheriff officer that was accompanying her stopped by, and they found Krista's, it was aged car, I believe was the words that was used, uh, parked out in the parking lot. They quickly spotted it and said it was not, you know, this is quite unlike her not to call in. She was very eager, very bubbly, you know, a very uplifting person. But since they couldn't get her on the phone, they went to the door. The door was locked. They could not raise her. They found then the backyard gate had been damaged. Uh, So the officers approached the backside of the house. They found a locked patio door with kind of what was described as bamboo shades that were partly lifted up off the floor level by just about 12, 14 inches. The male officer kneeled down, shining his flashlight inside the bedroom. He quickly spotted a large pool of blood and the naked body of of Christina sitting upright on the bed. Her feet were swung off of the bed, touching the floor. Her body was leaned forward as if precariously kind of balancing. As I had mentioned, her entrails had been cut out of her abdomen and were eerily displayed around her body like that of a picture frame. The grimacing sight took the officer by surprise, and he quickly told the officer, Gail Barber, don't look. There's nothing in there that you want to see, knowing she herself had been coping with her husband, who had come across the first grisly murder. They gained entrance into the bedroom, and the scene quickly escalated. While the body was posed, as we had stated, perched on the edge of the bed, the victim had been decapitated, and as Bill had stated, the killer had come back, tried to find his wallet, took the head, positioned it eerily on a bookcase as if looking down upon the body and this mutilated body in a pool of blood. The weirdness of this, it just keeps taking curves and turns. I mean, here you have now a whole family of law enforcement agencies that are involved in the biggest case in Gainesville, the first two murders back to back. The whole town is just freaking out. College students are dropping out. Parents are calling in. And of course, as any good parent would be, they, this information starts to leak out and they're like, well, that's where my kid goes. That's where my neighbor's kid goes. And everybody, it just, it escalates extremely quick. Well, in November of 1991, Rawling is formally charged with several counts of murder and brought to trial nearly four years after the murders. He claimed that his motive was to become a superstar like Ted Bundy. Wow. Which is, which is another reason why we should not name these people and give them notoriety. They're, they're like demons. You give them names and you give them power. So in 1994, before his trial can get underway, he pleads guilty to all charges. Uh, He recounts the abuse he suffered at the hands of his father. And a psychiatrist said that Rawling had an alternate personality named Gemini. And that Gemini drove him to these sadistic acts. Uh, Two other psychiatrists would also testify that that he suffered from a severe personality disorder. The jury unanimously found him guilty of five counts of first-degree murder in late March. Uh, during his trial, Court TV conducted an interview with his mother from her home, and you can hear his father uh, shouting off camera in the background. So apparently still 
a disgruntled human being even to that day. Right, right. Missing a, an eye and a partial ear <laughs> and, uh, yeah, still got his two cents to put in. So on April 20th, 1994, Rawling is sentenced to death. He is officially diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and paraphilia, which is defined as, you know, a fascination with extreme or dangerous, unnatural sex acts. So, uh, shortly before, before his execution of Florida, he claims responsibility for the Shreveport murders. Uh, he writes a handwritten confession and apology to his spiritual advisor. And for his last meal, he has lobster tail served with drawn butter, butterfly shrimp and cocktail sauce, baked potato with sour cream and butter, strawberry cheesecake, and sweet tea. He sang uh, gospel hymns before his execution, and he made no final words. It was witnessed by 47 individuals, uh, mainly his victim's relatives. Uh, October 25th, 2006, he's executed by lethal injection at Florida State Prison. Uh, his story would serve, as we've said before, as inspiration for Kevin Williamson's script for the 1996 slasher film Scream, which... Uh, you know, I confess, I saw it multiple times in the theater. I found it to be, at the time, probably one of the best horror movies that have been made in a long time. Mm -hmm. And it still even holds up. I watched it with my kids. It's it's still a good horror movie just for the way that it's so unlike other slasher films. Yeah, it's definitely got a that. unique to it, uniqueness. Um, but now I would also say the argument that he was inspired to write Scream based on these murders. Loosely. I mean, yeah, it's like he probably saw the news and was like, I should write a whole movie about a serial killer. You know, that, that's about it. I mean, the, the crimes are not the same. There's some similarity here and there. Obviously, you know, they changed from a college to a high school environment and things like that. You know, the cell phone usage, which was kind of a hallmark of that movie, obviously doesn't come into play in the actual murders. Right, right. So. Now, I did think it was interesting. Um, when Rawlings was found there, or he was in custody at o uh, Ocala, Florida, in the burglary charge and the bank robbery, there was a detective, Lagrain Hewitt, that went on record. Uh, he worked for the, and I hope I pronounced this correctly, the Alachua uh, County Sheriff's Office. He I'm was. Gonna, a, I'm going to say you're saying that wrong, but I can't tell you what the right one is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, well, I swear we'll I've heard it that. said a different way. But he, he goes on record and he says, we went in with a special strategy because we knew this was our guy. Uh, and of course, as we've talked, they, they have known it was the guy before and it wasn't the guy, but <laughs> this guy did have it uh, put together. And he said, I decided during the investigation that I told him we were investigating various different crimes in other areas, uh, outside even of our jurisdictions. Uh, he said, Specifically, I talked about areas that I knew he had never been in, and therefore he would have nothing to hide, trying to get that whole conversation started. And he said, we want to try to eliminate you from this. If you'll help us by simply giving us a blood sample, I know you weren't here, so you couldn't have done that. And apparently it worked, and, and Rawlings very freely gave a blood sample. Now, I mean, I, I hate to be this guy. But that seems a little shady. It does like, seem a little shady. Cops go, hey, if you give me a blood sample, I can say that you weren't here. I'm not telling you that I'm trying to prove and you were here. And it wasn't incorrect, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely came back. Now, you got to also consider, you know, the whole DNA and all that was still relatively new at that point. So maybe Rawlings just didn't make that connection that, you know, what what could they really accomplish from the blood? Are they going to try to find my blood somewhere, you know, not necessarily off of saliva or semen and you know, all the DNA stuff. Well, it's my understanding that, that really 
in in modern day society we expect a CSI level of of you know detail when in reality DNA evidence is not even all that good you know fingerprints no. they've proven are, are pretty much you know when you bring in an expert and he says the hair matches the DNA matches the fingerprint matches everybody thinks that that guy is like you know an expert in his field and sometimes it's just simply someone that takes a piece of paper and a transparency and goes, <laughs> that now they look the same. That looks pretty close. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, especially in smaller towns, uh, with theft and different things. And, and I've been involved with some of this. We've, you know, we've had some burglaries and some different things and it's easy to jump to that conclusion. And, you know, it's like, well, surely you can take fingerprints off of the side of this, you know, cash register and you can tell who broke in. And yeah, we don't live in a CSI environment. I, I think the best example of that is in the movie Big Lebowski when they steal his car and he goes, well, do you have any leads? And they're just like, leads. <laughs> they just laugh at him. Well, we hope that you enjoyed yet another installation on serial killers that you, the listeners, have requested on yet another example of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening and be safe out there, folks. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in, kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.